most of our prevention focus and all of our testing is really focused on these persistently infected animals. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we are welcoming back an old friend to the podcast. We are honored to once again have the renowned and respected Dr. Bob Larson on the pod to celebrate our 30th episode. Dr. Larson is a Coleman Chair of Food Animal Production Medicine at Kansas State University, where he's highly involved with teaching and research focused on beef cattle health and production. A fellow podcaster at the Beef Cattle Institute Cattle Chat Podcast, please help me welcome Dr. Bob Larson back to the podcast. Welcome back, Dr. Larson. Well, it's good to be here. Yeah, we are glad to have you back, a familiar face, and uh, a very timely topic. Um, last time we spoke, for those who have not listened to Dr. Larson's, our, our, our inaugural episode, we talked about a lot of different things. There was drought in there. There was waving magic wands to fe- fix the beef. There was a lot of things in there. So I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that episode, to go back and give it a listen uh, while you're making hay this summer. But um, this time we, we want to focus a little bit more on, in on BVD or bovine viral diarrhea. Uh, I know that that's one of your um, focuses and areas of expertise. So we really want to hone in on that. So knowing that, let's jump right in. Um, actually, for those who don't know who you are, which is probably a rare thing, but there may be someone out there. Could you give us you know, just your background? how you got to where you're at K-State, and then we'll jump in on the BBD. Sure, I'd be glad to. So I grew up in in Kansas and went to Kansas State University for my undergraduate in animal science and then vet school. I then practiced for a little while before before I uh, went back into academia and got a PhD in the animal science department at K-State. After that, went back to practice for a few more years, primarily in central Kansas, but a little bit of time in Illinois as well. And um, then I found myself at the University of Missouri for 10 years. And that was really a a great experience and one where I really kind of did a lot of work with BVD, bovine viral diarrhea, um, that is then extended onto my time here at K-State. So I spent 10 years in Missouri, the university there. And then I've been back at K-State since 2006. And I do teaching and research in the veterinary college and do kind of some outreach uh, with the industry as well. 10 years here and 10 years there. And then what you said, you went to K-State, you came back to K-State in 2006. Mm -hmm. So yeah, time adds up. Yeah. I was going to say your career is pretty lengthy here, Dr. Larson. Yeah. (laughs) That's a nice way of saying it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I meant no, I meant no harm. Um, years that definitely the experience has has racked up for you um well thank you for sharing that just for those who may not have heard your initial episode or had the good fortune of meeting you yet but so getting back to the bvd can you tell us you know what is bovine viral diarrhea and 
honestly, why is it a concern for, for cattle producers? Yeah, so there's there's a lot about this disease that makes it very interesting and very important. One maybe unfortunate thing is its name, um, in that although <laughs> it is possible for a animal infected with BVD to show signs of diarrhea, that's actually a rare occurrence now. It got that name because when it really first showed up in the United States in the uh, like early 1950s, late 1940s, um, very serious disease, often accompanied by you know, profound diarrhea and death. Um, you know, the, the virus mutates, animals build some immunity as the, the beef herd in the United States builds some immunity. And we don't see that syndrome uh, particularly anymore. But what we do see is a variety of syndromes. One is uh, reproductive problems, such as it can cause abortion, stillbirths, some birth defects. So it, it affects uh, pregnant animals, both the ability to get pregnant and maintain that pregnancy. It is also a really strong immunosuppressive virus in that it invades some of the important um, immune generating cells of the body. And so it just makes the animal more susceptible to other diseases. So in the on the feedlot side and stalker side, a lot of times we'll see it associated with respiratory disease or bovine respiratory disease, both as a primary pathogen that can cause damage to the respiratory tract, but also just because it can uh, suppress the immune system. So then other viruses and bacteria have a, a better chance to cause more harm. Um, and so you've got this uh, reproductive syndrome, you've got respiratory tract syndrome. And again, as the name would imply, you've also got the digestive tract in, uh, syndromes. So that's actually one of the reasons that BVD virus is kind of unusual is it affects so many different body systems. The other thing that makes it unique is, is that it's affecting uh, cow-calf, dairy, stalker, feedlot. It's it's really no no segment of the industry really gets a pass on this disease. Mm -hmm. I was just, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be kind of my next, was a kind of a, a follow-up was Obviously, it's affecting reproductive performance and lots of other segments there. But like, is there any effects on bulls? You know, you know, as like full grown bulls, if you've got like a seed stock producer who's, you know, finishing bulls or developing bulls or something like, that, you know, is it is it rear its ugly head there or? Occasionally, probably less there, although we could come up with a couple of, of exceptions. Um in that adult animals um, that aren't are not carrying a pregnancy like a like a bull um, may be infected with the virus and and again have a temporary immune suppression and those types of problems that could lead to some other issues but not likely to be life-threatening and usually an adult bull would be able to bounce back from any type of an infection there's some interesting things though that this virus can set up in uh, in the testicular tissue and can cause um, uh, the virus to show up in semen in the in the fluids associated with uh, semen and can pass that way. It's pretty unusual for a temporarily or you know, temporarily infected, acutely affected bull for that to be very important or common, but it's possible. Right. Well, I'm sure there's a situation where anything happens. Um, I was, I had a question in mind. Oh, you said it came here. It was first discovered or kind of popped up in the forties and fifties. How does something this like traumatic, I guess is the word I'm maybe traumatic is, I don't know. How does it just pop up yeah. and appear? I, 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 I'll, I should start and stop with the answer of, I don't know. 
because okay. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but there are, this is in the family of pestiviruses. And pestiviruses are in many different species. And that's one of the things we're actually kind of keeping an eye on uh, with other pestiviruses besides BVD. Um, so um, if anybody raises sheep, uh, border disease is a related virus in, in the sheep side of uh, ruminant. Um, and, and so there's, and in other parts of the world, there's some other pestiviruses. So probably my best guess would be um, a pestivirus in some species, possibly even in cattle, um, mutated and became much more uh, aggressive. And that's kind of where we got the disease we have today. I see. You mentioned that it, you know, it doesn't travel together with BR. I think you said BRD, um, but it's an immunosuppressant. Or are there other diseases that are more likely? You know, is there a higher prevalence in the other disease in another disease when something has BVD? Meaning, like, is there one disease that is very likely to to be going on at the same time, or is it just kind of happenstance? Or it's kind of whatever else is the biggest problem in that herd. So just think of BVD is one of the things it does is just suppresses the immune system. So the, the other uh, problems that the herd might be confronting at the time are what, gonna, are what are gonna show up. I've seen it, you know, show up maybe in more foot rot than you would expect, or definitely more respiratory disease than you would affect, expect. Um, so basically any other problems, if BVD is circulating in the herd, it's probably gonna be worse. Okay, so just the disease of the du jour, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's kind of disease of the day, whatever is there. Yeah. Um, shows up worse. Great. Just, that's just lovely. Um, yeah. How can, how can producers detect it? You know, like what are the, the, the easy symptoms to, to identify? Because I mean, sometimes there's something that could be a symptom that could just be an environmental issue. Like we're in a drought, it's really dusty. Is coughing a symptom as that? Could it be, are they coughing just from the dust? Or are they coughing because some other underlying issue? So like what can producers look for to determine if they maybe do have BVD, and if they suspect that, should they test? Kind of maybe, can you give some insight there on yeah, that? Great question. And because one of the main ways that BVD shows up is just it suppresses the immune system so other things show up, a lot of times there's not any one specific thing to look for, but there's a couple. One is BVD causes a birth defect that is pretty unique to BVD. Um, it causes the, the back part of the brain is, is the um, cerebellum. And it'll be, if you do a necropsy, it's small and it didn't develop right. And these calves often can't stand, won't stand, um, failure to thrive, definitely. And, and that's very specific, almost uniquely for BVD virus. So if you get one of those calves, and a lot of times they're kind of associated with some other things, kind of a, a domed head, sometimes a short lower jaw, those types of things. Now that's, again, there's a few other things that can cause those kinds of looking calves, but that would be a reason to start looking for BVD. The other thing is because um, BVD has been around for a while, the, the national cow herd is pretty well exposed. Uh, we have a fairly effective vaccines. And so it's, it's not common to see a completely naive cow herd. Uh, so the reason that is important is so that the problems we see are kind of subtle. A few animals, maybe maybe the younger animals, maybe the animals that didn't have as good immune protection, they might be affected and other animals are not. So it, it's looking for higher than expected respiratory disease based on other risk factors or you know, 
anytime that my reproductive performance goes down or a few more abortions, BDD is on my list to, to look for. And by looking for, we actually have some nice diagnostic tests. Um, and we can identify the virus in blood, in serum, and we can also identify what we call a persistently affected state in skin tissue. So people are probably familiar with, you know, taking an ear notch or other skin sample and looking for uh, the virus in that. And that is a nice diagnostic tool that we have um, to investigate problems. You touched on this. I believe you just touched on persistently infected. And I want to talk about that uh, real specifically, but can you kind of, before we get to that, so from what I'm understanding is that you may not have a, a clue that there's BVD in your herd, like active until one of your calf hits, your calves hit the ground and they're, you know, they look pretty off. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually true. A lot of times um, I've been involved in some situations where we'll do some screening um, either for marketing purposes or research purposes or those types of things. And we'll identify a herd that has some persistently infected calves in them. And when we go back into the history, what we get a history of is just subtle changes. Again, a little bit higher death loss, you know, from birth to weaning than we should have, but not catastrophic. A few more open cows than we should have, but not catastrophic. And that's oftentimes the, the history you get now. I've also seen some situations where, particularly if the herd is pretty naive, that you can have a lot of open cows and a, and a pretty high death loss. But probably more common is a little bit more subtle than that. Okay, well, that's certainly that's kind of terrifying, honestly. It, it is. I'm, oh, you uh, lose yes. the whole calf crop or something, and then you know you're in a whole year set behind and in input costs. And I can see how the economic um, loss can get really can really stack up really quickly. But back to the PI, I remember learning about this or not, clearly I didn't learn it all the way because I'm asking you about it again, but I remember hearing about this and studying for it when I was in um, undergrad. But can you kind of explain the concept of a PI or persistently infected animal and like their role in BVD transmission and just kind of, just kind of all about PI? And so the, the persistently infected BVD calf or PI animal is, kind of unique for uh, BVD, and it's both what makes the disease bad and also gives us a chance to control it. Um, so a persistently infected calf was infected in utero or while, you know, during its dam's pregnancy. So the dam was exposed to the virus, probably from another persistently infected calf that, you know, from the previous calving season or something else. So she's infected during pregnancy, and it's at a time when the fetus's immune system is just developing. So the virus infects the fetus. And then, and this is, this is not common for other viruses, but the, but the fetus will see the BVD virus as self, meaning it, it doesn't build an immune res response against it. So it allows the virus to multiply to very, very high levels. Oh um, my. And, and in reality, as you might so expect, a lot of times that calf gets aborted. Right? right. And in some yeah. ways, that's maybe the best thing that could happen, <laughs> because if he's not aborted, he will then go ahead and live. And then he will not see BVD virus as being a foreign virus. He sees it as part of himself. So he makes lots and lots and lots of copies. So he's he is able then to shed that virus at extremely high levels, higher levels than, you know, if you say, you know, viral particles per droplet of of snot or something like that, way higher than we see for other 
pathogens. And so that's why it can be so bad is these little PI calves are really virus factories and they can tr produce a tremendous amount. The good thing, if there is a good thing about this is because he became persistently infected in utero and it's before his immune system really develops, if a calf is born, once a calf is born, they are either persistently infected or they're not, and they okay. can never change characteristics. So if he's okay. a PI, he's a PI for life. If he's born not PI. a PI, he can never become persistently infected. Because it's that, a genetic. That has several. Yeah, that has some nice advantages, meaning that a, a once-in-a-lifetime test can identify him exactly as persistently infected or not. So that, and that's one. So our and usually we'll use one of the skin notch tests. And so we'll take a notch of skin, do that test, and it, it's not one hundred percent accurate, but it's pretty accurate. And so if it fits with the history and the the test, you know, is used appropriately, basically an an animal that tests negative, you can consider them negative for life, and an animal that tests positive, they're positive for life. For as a PI. Right. So we've got other diseases that can cause lifelong infection once an animal becomes infected. BLV virus, anaplasmosis, uh, even IBR virus, all of those will cause an animal to be infected for the rest of their life once they're infected, but they're infected after they've been born. So they could be six months old or 10 months old or four years old before they become persistently infected. That's not true with BVD. The day they're born, we know their status for the rest of their life. So that doesn't mean like they might still get infected with it, but they wouldn't be a PI at any point. Exactly right. Then they're temporarily infected or transiently infected. And then it is a, it, again, this virus still has some immunosuppressive capabilities. It can cause abortion and those types of things. But we're talking uh, a viral period of 10 days or less usually. And, and so versus a persistently infected animal is persistently infected for their life. And that's really important when you think about who's spreading it to other animals. So a temporarily infected animal can spread to other animals, but at so much less probability than a persistently infected animal. So most of our prevention focus and all of our testing is really focused on these persistently infected animals. If we, we are doing tests to identify those animals and get them out of the herd um, and by doing that, we've gotten rid of by far most of the, the source of viral spread. So your recommended source of management or management practice, if you, if someone, if a producer identifies a PI animal is just to say, you're out of here. Pretty much. And that, that usually there's, there's two options. One is euthanasia, which is common, particularly when they're young. Um, the other is lifelong segregation because, and, and again, I'll give you some general generalities. If I've got a stalker operation that does some PI testing, so they're testing calves at arrival at a stalker operation, what we'll find is if we were to segregate all the persistently infected animals, many of them would die of respiratory disease or other problems uh, within the coming weeks, but not all. <laughs> Meaning that if I euthanize them all, I which might be the best thing to do because they're likely to die. And in the meantime, they're going to require treatment. They're going to eat feed. They're going to require a lot of attention, but some of them don't die. Some of them can survive up till the time that they would be harvested or at least salvaged. 
And so some operations will choose to keep them segregated far away from the rest of the cattle and basically uh, kind of allow mother nature to take its course and see which ones are really going to survive and which ones are not. So probably most common animals are euthanized that are persistently infected. That's not the only pathway, but it's probably the most common. Gotcha. That's very interesting. And I had not thought about the fact of, you know, testing all your incoming grass cattle, you know, for that, but that's someone, as someone who has those, I'm now very interested in that, <laughs> especially as pink eye is ramping up. I'm, I'm dreading that. So, um, okay. So staying here on the PI animals, um, are there any herd management practices that can help prevent the development of those? Yes. And the, and the two really good tools, well, there's two or three tools, but I'm going to say two really important tools. Our vaccines are fairly effective. I mean, and actually quite good. The limitations of our vaccine, so this would be making sure that your cow herd is vaccinated well going into the breeding season so that they're well protected during that early part of fetal development. Um, that is, is pretty good. The reality, though, is even when we do a, a, you know, a whole herd vaccination program, different animals respond to the vaccine well or not. Younger animals tend to maybe not have as high of the immunity as older animals. And the other thing is if those animals are exposed to a persistently infected calf, because that calf is ex just expressing so much virus, that might be a big enough load to overcome a, a immune response that would be fine to protect the animal against a temporarily infected animal, but not sufficient to protect against this persistently infected. So we use our vaccines because they are helpful to raise herd immunity, to provide some level of protection, particularly against uh, these exposure to a temporarily infected animal. And then we use our, our diagnostic testing, the skin tests of calves particularly, and, and the timing is important. If I can test all the calves, so you gave the scenario herd, we think they've got BVD. Maybe we've got a couple of these stillborn calves with the, you know, the brain lesions. And so we know that BVD is circulating in the herd. If we were to go in and test every calf that has been born right before the start of the breeding season, and identify all of those positive PI calves and remove them from the herd, probably euthanasia, uh, remove them from the herd, um, we will have removed that pressure right before the breeding season starts. Now, the one other caveat to that is, um, you know, I told you that once in a while those stalker calves, those uh, grass calves will live. Well, if that was a replacement heifer, most of them won't survive to be bred oh. and go into the herd. Okay but a few do. <laughs> so if a persistently infected heifer happens to survive all the way to become pregnant and then survives through pregnancy, she will definitely have a persistently infected calf, right? Okay. Makes but sense. Yeah. Most cows that have a persistently infected fetus, the cow herself is not persistently infected. She was just exposed during gestation and became viremic during that special stage of gestation when she created a persistently infected calf. So most PI calves, if I go and test their dam, she's not a PI. All right. Okay. Yeah. But that, but I do that. If I, any calf that I find that's a persistently infected calf, I go test its dam because I want to find out again, I want to make sure that all persistently infected animals are gone from the herd before the next breeding season. That's going to be mostly calves, but just to be sure, I'm going to test the calves that are positives dams as well. And that way I can go. And this is the beauty of the of this disease is because I can remove 
all of the persistently infected animals, calves and potentially any cows, before the start of the next breeding season with a normal vaccination program, that should protect them against most of any other types of exposure that they should have. And I can go from having a BVD problem one year to really eliminating that problem so I don't have it in the future. And is it a one year? Is it an annual? I should know this. I'm sure we vaccinate for it, but I don't always look at the bottle. I'm just pushing cattle up to shoot. Is it a lifetime or is it like need to be done annually or biannually? Like, um... Yeah. We recommend basically annual boosters. Probably the most important is getting our heifers set up well. So make sure that, and usually I'm recommending two or maybe even better, three uh, doses of exposure to vaccine prior to their first breeding season. And then annual boosters after that is what I would consider appropriate for most herds. Okay. So if a, that's, that's very good to know. Thank you. If a producer identifies animals in the herd, not PI, so we're transitioning back to like, I guess, normal, I'm putting, it's nobody's watching me, but putting quotes, normal. If, a, if they find a BVD positive animal, a normal one that's not PI, what treatments should they take to take care of that animal, but then try to control the spread of the virus for, throughout their herd? You mentioned like seg uh, segregating PI animals, but you know, what's the, the process for just like one or two that you've... Well, pl the pluses and minuses are... A, a, a minus to the scenario you just gave me is, you know, the test that we would use, we'd use a, probably a blood sample, send that to the lab. And probably by the time we got our test results back, that calf would no longer be in viremic. <laughs> and so we're not going to probably rely on diagnostic tests to identify those temporarily infected animals. But in a herd that's got some, um, we think there's PI animals in there. So there's probably also some temporarily infected animals. Then you just use kind of good spread animals out, segregation, identify sick animals immediately, isolate them away from others. And then because it's a virus, um, antibiotics don't really directly affect the virus, but because it's immunosuppressive, sometimes I'm worried about bacterial infections that might come in behind it. So basically just good nursing care and being aware of other diseases that, that might come along with this problem. So, okay, that's good. I mean, that's all really good information. I'm, and I'm glad you're touching on that. You were mentioning earlier uh, at the very beginning of the episode, you're talking about there's going to be abortions and that is kind of maybe your first clue or whatever can be a clue that you've got BBD. Um, is there like not any numbers around like death loss specifically related to BVD or can the death loss not only of calves, but of like all segments, cow, calf, stalker, all segments be, is it all related to the BVD or is it be some of it being attributed to the underlying issues that are coming on because of BVD? Is it, are there any numbers around that? I yeah. Guess? And, and the numbers vary. Yeah. The numbers vary greatly because um, probably the underlying health and immunity of the herd where we're seeing the problems, the biggest problems I've seen are, have been in some relatively isolated herds that didn't, you know, have a kind of a routine vaccination program. And so that the herds were pretty naive. And when it came in, probably the worst case scenarios I've seen is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ballpark this a little bit, but maybe, you know, 30% or more open cows versus what I expect would be, you know, five or 10 at the most, just from an, an, a normal herd. So substantially more open cows and usually associated also with some additional death loss so that our overall weaned calves per cow exposed would be 
is just lower. Very low, you know, approaching yeah. 50%, which is, you know, okay. catastrophic. That's the worst case scenario. And, and in a university position, I get called in on some of those, so I get to see them sometimes. That's actually pretty rare. What we're tending to see is, say, if you run a herd where on a year in and year out, you're running about 5% open cows, it, it could be two, three percentage points more. So again, not so devastating that it's obvious you have a problem, but but because of the development of PIs, then you're going to maintain that pressure year after year. And you'll probably always be just a couple of percentage points below where you ought to be if you could get rid of this virus. Kind of the same thing on calf health. Um, you know, national averages are two, three percent death loss between birth and, and weaning. And um particularly past the first 48 hours or so. And with a BVD problem, it, and again, in a naive herd, it might be substantial death loss in calves. What I'd really expect to see is two or three percentage points more than what I typically have, which again, becomes very frustrating um, economically and as a producer, not so devastating that it's obvious you have a problem. So it's easy to kind of not notice. Um, and so that's why a lot of times when we do find these PI animals for one reason or another, and we go back to the cow-calf herd where they originated, um, and we kind of clean that up. It's not that you made a night and day difference in health, but things get a little bit better and cows breed up a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, two to 3%, that doesn't sound like a lot, you know, on a herd of hundred cows, that's three head, but it's three head every year, you know, and if your herd is bigger than that. So, I mean, little things add up like that. And in a business with tight margins, obviously little things matter. So kind of swinging the pendulum back the other way, if you're not, if somebody's just not going to vaccinate, they don't monitor it and they're not managing it. Like what, you know, what's the, I guess the consequences we kind of touched on that is basically you're just going to be doing a little bit worse every year. If, if you're just not doing anything about it. Right. Because one of the things that we do know is um, you will build some herd stability. You know, the cows are being exposed to BVD virus uh, throughout the year, if there's PI calves in there. And so they'll build pretty strong immunity. That's that's a pretty good vaccination is to be exposed to the virus from these persistently infected calves. And so the herd immunity actually becomes quite good. Okay. But you've also got these PI calves that are very high exposure. So those few animals that don't have quite a good immunity, they just always stay uh, susceptible. And that's why, again, in a herd that has a BVD problem, if you did nothing, this year and probably next year, noticeable problems. And then you kind of get to this stability where you're not quite as good as you ought to be, but it's not a disaster year after year after year. That's definitely interesting. So I think I know the answer to this, but I'm just gonna, we're just gonna roll with it. But why does persistent BVD cause such significant economic losses? And are there any numbers that you know of that can like, that attempt to give a, an economic outcome of like how much it's costing the industry as a whole every year. I think one of the reasons that, it, that PVD gets the attention that it deserves is because it can cause harm at different sectors. So picture a, a scenario where um, you've got a few more open cows, you have a few more calves that die at birth or are stillborn, you have a little bit higher death loss between birth and weaning. And then once we've sold those calves and they go into a stalker operation or a feedlot operation, again, we have some more uh, harm. Um, those those losses start to uh, accumulate. And then the other thing about once we've left the cow-calf operation, now remember I said that you'd build some 
stability, some immune stability in that herd because they're exposed all the time. Well, when I take those calves, if there's a couple of PI calves and I sell them into the marketplace and they get commingled with other cattle that don't have this, you know, they haven't been in a herd that's been exposed to BVD, uh, maybe vaccinated, maybe not, but then I'm exposing them at a time when we're doing transit, changing their diet and other things. So at the stalker and feedlot phase, we may see increased, um, well, viral shed, and then a lot of temporarily infected animals just at the time when they're at, uh, at susceptibility for bovine respiratory disease. And so that's another place where we've gone beyond the cost of the PIs themselves. We're causing some abortions, we're causing some herd mates to have greater death loss. And then as we go into marketing channels, uh, when we commingle, and again, you know, some of the calves I might commingle them with would have pretty good immune response and wouldn't be devastated. But other groups might be pretty susceptible, and I put a PI calf in that population, and we can have some serious um, co uh, collateral damage. Yeah, it's kind of that movie. Um, it's a Dustin Hoffman movie from like the late '90s. I think it's called Outbreak or something. Oh, like yes, that. yes, yeah. Um, good movie, relevant. Um, it sounds like that. You know, what leaves there? If it leaves your farm or your ranch, you don't know what's happening after it's gone. That's, you know, that speaks more to it, just further speaks to why it needs to be um, handled, I guess. Are there, it sounds very doom and gloom. Are there any bright spots on the horizon for, I don't know. I mean, is it all just, is this going to be the status quo for the next five decades of it? Or what do you think? I think in, in some ways, yes, uh, these viruses are very good at, at sustaining themselves. Um, and so completely eradicating this virus is, is quite challenging. A few countries have done it that had relatively small, some of the Scandinavian countries have actually instituted, you know, aggressive testing and removal and basically eliminated the virus from their, from their countries. We have such a large industry and I didn't mention before, it, it can also have in fact, white tailed deer. It seems like deer can carry so many things, which. There's no deer, the deer around never in this. <laughs> deer and elk aren't particularly good at transmitting the virus, but they can. And so eliminating it in this country is probably not a good use of resources. But for a individual farm or ranch, um, I think some of the things that you do, so I'm going to talk cow-calf, um, is a good vaccination program that includes BVD virus, which many ranches would be using. And that really decreases your risk greatly, um, really monitoring any additions that you bring into the herd. So that would be replacement heifers and even bulls. And again, bulls are kind of like um, older heifers. They're not likely to be infected because these PI calves, many of them will, because they're also immune suppressed. Uh, so they suppress other calves with their virus. Well, they themselves are also immune suppressed. And so it's very common for them to not survive to weaning or you know, if they do survive to weaning, it's very common for them not to survive later. But there's always a few exceptions. So a rare yearling bull that's a PI, a rare replacement heifer that's a PI. So that's why we, we test those populations. I don't expect to get very many positives, but I don't want to miss them either. So we test animals that we bring onto the herd. We have a good vaccination program. And then the other place where we do see some issues is who, which cattle are on fence row contact with our breeding herd. Um, so again, stalker cattle, 
that might come in from many different herds, having fence line contact with my breeding herd, I would I would try to avoid that. Um, not always easy to accomplish, but being aware of, you know, when the cows uh, are not pregnant or when uh, they're late in gestation, there might be other reasons to also avoid that. So be aware that, um, and, and it's not, yes, the virus can cross the herd or cross the fence, but so can cattle. <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. I, I don't yeah. want a persistently infected stalker calf to get through the fence and get in with my pregnant cows. And so vaccinations, testing of animals we bring into the herd and some fence line controls, particularly thinking about during that the breeding season. So if a, this is relevant, I'm very intrigued by this because I had a bull jump fence today and that's what I was doing before this, putting, getting the bull back. Um, and we also run grass cattle and cows and they don't run together, but they do follow each other in a rotational grazing system. But the, if the herd is vaccinated and you had a stalker that, you know, you had one, uh, you had a steer that was infected and your cow herd is, is vaccinated against it. I mean, are you going to be pretty closely protected on that? Like pretty safe if they're all vaccinated? And, and I, I wish I could give you definite numbers, but let me say it this way. If that's one of those temporarily infected animals, meaning that they're going to be viremic for seven to 10 days and at a level that's much less than a persistently infected animal, I'm kind of counting on my vaccines to protect me against that. And I think they do a very good job of protecting me against that kind of exposure. If that steer that jumped over the fence was a persistently infected animal, I think the vaccines would definitely decrease the number of animals that that we might have problems with, but it probably doesn't take it to zero. Okay. Um, and so that's very interesting. I, that's, that's kind of my maybe a little bit of a wishy-washy answer, but um, no, I, I don't think our, it's our vaccines are helpful, but they they are challenged by these persistently infected calves. If you have persistently infected calf in close contact, particularly for several days, that's that's a challenge. Okay. That's very helpful. I'm writing that down. So I wanted to look. So thank you for that. Um, I feel like we have kind of talked at length, but I'm sure that there is just oodles and oodles more to talk about with BVD. I want to be cognizant of your time. Is there is there anything about BVD particular or maybe just anything that we didn't touch on and you want to really make sure that our audience hears that's a takeaway that I neglected to steer us towards? Is there anything like that? Well, I think we have covered a lot of the important things. I guess maybe just the double-edged sword part of this disease is it it can be it can be pretty devastating, or it can be just kind of a drippy faucet, annoying, low-level loss, um, and and it affects basically no aspect of the beef industry or even the dairy industry is is immune from this completely. But we do have good tools that the test of PI animals is unique because it's a lifetime test. If they're negative, they're, they're never going to become a persistently infected animal. So which allows us to be pretty aggressive with culling because um, if, if an animal is positive, we can cull them. We can greatly reduce the exposure to the rest of the herd. So we have some tools that um, as bad as this disease can be, we've got pretty good tools for this disease. And so as a veterinarian, I feel like I can come in and really help a herd and change the situation. Whereas many other diseases we talked about that have persistently infected carriers, um, we'll, we'll always kind of be battling those over time. And this is when I think I can win the battle. Now, it might come back later, but I can win the battle in the short term. 
but it's a battle, not a war. So that's, that's encouraging to hear that we can win a battle. That's, yeah, it I, is encouraging once in a while. <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's a lot of battles that we just maybe are never going to win. So having you know, a notch on our belt, that, that makes me feel good. Um, I did, I told you at the beginning of this before we actually went on air that I wasn't going to ask you the, the beef resource book or anything like that. But I do want to ask you, as we ask all of our guests. It's time for our famous three. What is a book that is not related to beef or cattle that you're reading right now that you would recommend to our audience? This is the only rapid fire question one I've got for you today is just this one book. So one of my, my guilty pleasures is I like mystery, uh, mystery books, mystery novels. And I just stumbled upon a series uh, um, by Margaret Allingham, A-L-L-I-N-G-H-A-M, Allingham. And I'm only on the second book, and she's got a bunch of them. And I'm really kind of enjoying them. They're a lot of fun. So that's that's my my new uh, series that I've gotten started on. Mysteries by, by Margaret Allingham. Gotcha. My daughter is six. She just She's using my library card this summer, and she is super big into um, Scooby-Doo mystery books right now. So um, you guys have that in common. She just finished the creepy cowboy caper. And <laughs> yeah, there so, you go. That's, she's, on, she's on the path towards a lifelong of mysteries. Yes, she is. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you again for coming on the show. That is all the time we have today. But thank you for being with us again here today. I know that you're very busy, but we so greatly value your expertise and your advice for our producers and our audience. If people want to find more information about you or your work or the Beef Cattle Institute Cattle Chat podcast, which I didn't mention enough, but Dr. Larson does um, host the Beef Cattle Institute Cattle Chat podcast. Um, where can they do that? Where can they find you? Well, I... The Beef Cattle Institute uh, website is probably the best place to find information about me, some of the things that the, the research group that I work with are doing, as well as, you know, some other articles and things like that. So the beef, just if you Google Beef Cattle Institute, you'll end up at the right site. Okay. Well, that sounds great. I'm going to make sure that we have that um, in the show notes so that people can find that. And again, you can find um, the podcast. Is it on like wherever you get podcasts? Absolutely. Apple. So wherever you get, so um, iOS, uh, any, any, any podcast service. If you, again, cattle chat is the name of the podcast. So look for cattle chat. Um, great. Well, thank you again for that. Um, and for your time, that is all the time we have to do here today. So thank you all for joining us. Dr. Larson, thank you for being here. And to our audience, we hope you'll join us again next week on the beef podcast show. <laughs>